the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about living with that grumpy spouse and when is it time to give up on that relationship with Dr. June Hall. Also talking about a new sexual health research study that is being conducted by Dr. Lori Brado through virtual reality. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Maureen's Health Headline. Well, you've heard his voice every single week, practically. He is an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. And uh, he studies emerging and re-emerging viruses and also variants these days. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. Good evening, Maureen. Can you believe we are here? (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, uh, I've, I've said to uh, to others that this past week was this has been a, a very very long week for for many of us mm-hmm. that are involved in COVID. I think the last nine days um, have been a bit of a whirlwind, uh, and I think we're you know certainly how we're dismayed, uh, you know, at, at seeing the the emergence of another variant of concern. Um, but we're also trying as quickly as we can to figure out how we can characterize what Omicron is. And, and what it uh, you know what it actually is doing. I think that's the the difficulty is we're we're asking a lot of questions. We do not have a lot of answers right now, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, now with Am- Omicron, are we back where we were in March 2020? No, I don't think so. Right? Listen, the data is still going to come in. We we don't know a lot about vaccine effectiveness, obviously against Omicron yet. It'd be very surprising. If we saw, certainly we, we won't see a complete loss in, in uh, protection. We don't know, uh, you know, much about the immune evasion aspects that, that have been described uh, for Omicron based on, on the sequence of, uh, of the spike protein. Um, you know, I, I think we have to appreciate that not only have we seen, obviously, a lot of people getting vaccinated, we've seen a lot of people that have gotten infected as well. So there's, there is some underlying protection in the community. The question is, how much is there and, and, and what is the protective effect of that against hospitalization? And I think that's, you know, the, the difficulty is we're seeing that disparity between communities across the globe. High income communities are, are in a very good position. Low income communities, uh, unfortunately, because of low uh, you know vaccine uptake and hesitancy, all these other factors, they are probably going to be in a tough spot. Yeah, I mean, it's just shocking that, you know, a year and a half ago, we were hoping, praying for a vaccine and uh, thinking it wasn't going to come for a decade or, or at least four years. And then there it was. They'd already been working on it for a number of years, not in particular, but the technology, the mRNA technology. And here we have it. And, it, and it's been politicized, wildly politicized. I mean, it's just amazing uh, the responses you get, especially if you post something on LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, or anything like like the, I don't know if you saw this, I'm sure you did, the BC Chiropractor Association. I, I believe a small percentage yeah. of them voted against any vaccine mandates. I mean, you, you got to shake your head. It, it's frustrating, right? And mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, certainly we're watching this, obviously, and, you know, during a week when we've seen the emergence of another variant of concern. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 again, as somebody who's been involved in a lot of emergency phone calls this week around the globe and, and at all hours of, of the day, um, there is a, a massive concern about this. Um, but yeah, but when you hear, you know, certainly the, the concerns being raised about being able to get vaccine equity met across the globe, and then you hear, you know, the, the other, you know, accounts of, well, we don't want to have a vaccine mandate 
we don't think we need it, or even some of the questions about about whether Omicron is real. I, it's 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 frustrating. I, I think I, I don't know as if I've felt certainly this worn out um, during the pandemic yet. Uh, I, I think it's been one of those weeks where it's really hit home because we feel like we're getting closer to uh, to being you know much further ahead than we ever have been, and and this has been a big blow, and and we have to figure out in a matter of you know, days to a couple of weeks, what this is as quickly as possible. Exactly. And people make decisions. You know, I I do COVID consulting uh, in in, um, television and film. And, you know, people make decisions based on that, you know, we're kind of getting a handle on this. The the vaccine uptake was increasing. It was improving. You make decisions about maybe you're going to go somewhere for the first time in a year and a half, perhaps go to an indoor event and then realize when you get there, (laughs) you're just going to turn around and go home. Um, Because, which happened to me actually this week, about a month ago, I was invited to an event with some colleagues and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go. By then I will have my booster and which I have. And um, on the day of the event, I, I hadn't actually, they said, if you're not going to come after you've said yes, you know, let us know. And I thought it was kind of too late for me to say no. So I thought, you know what, nobody's going to turn up. I'm going to go there. I'm just wearing my KN95 mask. I'll stay near the door. And I got there and there were like 50 or 60 people in there drinking and no masks and eating. And I just couldn't even go in. I kept my KN95 mask on. I spoke to a few colleagues outside of the room. And, uh, you know, and I went home after 14 minutes. <laughs> that was my, uh, that was the amount of time because, yeah, as we know, six feet, uh, being close to somebody within six feet um, for 15 minutes, you increase your risk of exposure. So, yeah, and it, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, life just gets confusing. Well, and I think, you know, it's tough because we're, we're in a position where certainly we're seeing a lot of hot takes on, on what Omicron is or, or is not. Um, and I will say unequivocally, we don't know uh-huh. specifically what it is yet. Now, we have to appreciate that, there, you know, when we think about the, you know, the, this description of Omicron and, you know, well, is it more virulent? Is it less virulent? Is it more transmissible, less transmissible? All these different questions. It's not a binary yes or no, right? Everything is a gradient. Uh-huh. And that, that's been a little bit frustrating because I, I think you're certainly seeing a lot of people that, you know, are watching data coming out of South Africa and, and other places and this hope that, okay, is it less virulent? Is it putting less people in a hospital? Um, and certainly I think we're, we're all hoping that. But we also have to appreciate that if this virus is more transmissible but has a little bit less virulence than, than what Delta is, that's still not a great situation um, because now you have something that potentially is going to reach a lot more people, uh-huh. but maybe is still going to put a, a proportion of those people in, into hospital. And so we have to think about this from the overall numbers that are involved. And, and, and I think, you know, provide context to the public and saying, listen, we are dealing with very small data sets right now that are very noisy. Um, we can't make all of our decisions on what Omicron is uh, at this moment in time. We, we literally, we need the time to be able to get the virus out to labs across the globe and get reagents out. And, and that's and been the nature of a couple of weeks. Absolutely. That's been the nature of this beast all along. I, I have Dave from Cochrane, Alberta on the line. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. How are you guys? Fine, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. I got a question now. I got the vaccination, uh, the two, two, two vaccines. Now, if a person with the vaccine and a person without it can equally carry the virus to spread to other people, 
why would I be or an unvaccinated person be a danger to other ones? Like, it, it just seems the danger from everybody is the same. And if I didn't have the vaccine and I went into a place like a restaurant now where you have to show your phone and, mm-hmm. you know, you show them your vaccines and stuff, why would, I don't understand why the risk factor is different. And, and I just, I'm the only one who is in danger if I don't have the vaccine of making myself sick. Is that correct? Like, I, I didn't hear that last part. Well, if I didn't have the vaccine, yeah. then I could get the virus and, and get sick. Fair enough. But why is an unvaccinated person, person more hazardous or more dangerous to be around than a person that has the vaccine? We, I'll let the doctor take over, um, but, uh, you know, you can still contract COVID-19 even if you are vaccinated. You get less burden of disease, uh, fewer hospitalizations and death. Um, Dr. Kendrick, do you want to take that question? Yeah, again, it's, we have to think about this in, in terms of being a gradient, right? So if somebody's vaccinated, it is not an absolute that they are 100% protected. We know certainly with immune waning, specifically in high-risk groups, um, that, that we can still see breakthrough infections. We may still see people that, that get severely ill, and those people could potentially still transmit the virus. Now, we also have to appreciate that in this, when we talk about COVID, um, one of the things that we, we tend to kind of not talk about is that, that burden on, on the healthcare system uh-huh. that prevents other people from being able to get care. Certainly, we're dealing with that in, in Manitoba. We've dealt with that throughout, you know, across the rest of the globe, is that those people that unfortunately require hospital care then, of course, uh, end up putting basically a, a toll on the ability of, of others being able to get access to health care. So when we think about the, the toll of COVID, it's COVID plus all those other people that have not been able to get care for the other uh, diseases or, or other ailments and, and procedures that they've needed to get. And, and Dave, you've done the right thing. I want to say thank you and congratulations. <laughs> but something else that I think people forget, and I met a couple of people in my clinical practice this week who were fully vaccinated but got COVID and have had long haul symptoms as well. I mean, I just don't want to get COVID, A, because I don't want to get sick. B, it's really going to interrupt my schedule. And, and C, I don't want to get long haul symptoms. And I really feel it's my responsibility to actually, because, the, you know, the healthcare system belongs to all of us. And I don't want to be a party to preventing people from getting access to health care yeah no i totally understand and i have copd and i was hospitalized for two weeks with a uh, um uh, i forget exasperation or like a mm-hmm. exacerbation a my lungs. anyway yeah yes yes exactly uh but how can a vaccinated person say to an unvaccinated person get away from me you're a danger to me uh stay away put on your mask i don't understand why well, because you're more likely to contract it from them because they're more likely to get sick and they're more likely to get very sick. I, I actually had somebody, I asked them, I went out for dinner with them outdoors and I said, you guys vaccinated? And they said, yes. And they lied to me. I found out later. Don't do that. <laughs> I can't get COVID. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, they would be, they would have a greater, and people can be sick and asymptomatic as well. They can have COVID, yeah. I should say. They could have. They could be positive and um, be asymptomatic. But yes, they're not but anymore. They're more likely. Than- the vaccines work incredibly well, but those unvaccinated people are more likely to contract COVID and more likely to give it to you. Why more likely to give it to me though? Because they're more likely That's to have it. They're care. more. They're more likely to have it because <laughs> they're unvaccinated. They're not protected, so they can get it. So they can uh, hang out with them, able- drink with them, eat with them, and they've got COVID. And you might be one of the rare people who gets a breakthrough infection. 
and they also have a longer infectious period, right? It's one of the things exactly. that people that are vaccinated is that if they do get infected, um, the, the overall burden of disease is, is, light, is obviously lower, but there's also the period where they can actually um, uh, spread the disease uh, is also shorter, which, which makes a big difference because you can have somebody that has a breakthrough infection that might be symptomatic, but that period where they're symptomatic is going to be shorter, which means that their ability to present, uh, um, transmit the virus in the community also will be shorter. Welcome back. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is on the line. We've got just a few minutes left, Dr. Kinderchuk. Um, I had a comment from somebody. They said that um, science seems difficult to define these days. And this is an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, you know, I think it's difficult because I think we're seeing um, just how broadly science can can be used as a term to define many different areas. Um, I, I think part of it is, you know, what what is what is science? What what constitutes, um, you know, actual, uh, you know, actual, I guess, investigation mm-hmm. into different phenomena and, and, and certainly, um, you know, I guess, cogent investigation. So it's, it is difficult. And, and I think certainly the, the lines between science and pseudoscience mm-hmm. have been blurred because we've seen so much misinformation. Oh. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's not that science is difficult to define. I think it's that people don't understand science or don't understand the science when it relates to yeah. COVID-19. I do have a text message here from somebody who shall be nameless in Ontario who says, in Ontario, the second dose is as bad as an anti-vaxxer. Three-course treatment is needed. Add the third dose requirement to the passport. Do you think that we're going to be seeing that in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's certainly more of a push towards this being a three-dose vaccine. And of course, listen, there, there is no preconceived notion of how many doses a vaccine should be, uh, certainly when, when it's uh, you know first coming out to market and first being tested. The hope is to have as few doses as possible so we can get it out to communities. Um, but we also are learning in real time how many doses this needs to be. Right. And, and is there is there a small chance that with Omicron, this could be the beginning of the end? If, if, if it's not as strong uh, as the Delta, for example, if it's a little bit more like the common cold, if it's weaker, if it kind of dies out, is that is that a good sign? Oh, I hope so. Uh, listen, I think for, for certainly for many areas of the world that, that have a lot of access to vaccines and healthcare, I think certainly it could be. It, it could certainly be something that we will look back on and say, oh, this was a starting of a change. It's going to be the low and middle income areas where we still need to get vaccines out. Absolutely. Um, that, uh, that, that we're gonna, that's going to extend for a while. Yeah, there's so much uh, vaccine hesitancy in, in third um world countries and you know they, they're returning vaccines as well i mean the education is so important and it's just a shame this has been politicized as usual dr Kinderchuk, thank you so much for joining me on the program we'll see what next week brings <laughs> absolutely worried i'm frightened already <laughs> i well, i'm hoping for good news the perennial optimist here <laughs> thank you so much and this next segment could be a bad case of loving you. I deal with this quite often in my clinical practice. I hear from couples who are in relationships, long-term, short-term, they're married, they're living together, whatever, that they have a grumpy spouse. So what did I do? I brought in the expert, Dr. June Hall, affectionately known as Dr. June. She's the founder of Accentuate Positive Thinking, or APT, which facilitates personal and professional development workshops. She's also a nationally syndicated advice columnist, a TEDx speaker, and host of her YouTube show, Cooking Up Advice. She joins me on the line. You've heard her voice before. Dr. June, thanks for coming back. 
Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I mean, this is an issue uh, that I see in my clinical practice. Quite frankly, I, I couldn't stand it if I had a grumpy spouse or a spouse who was moody or, you know, uh, upset all the time. And, and this is what I hear in my clinical practice from from people. And, and that's really, really difficult to live with for the, for the spouse who may not be or, or may not perceive themselves as somebody who's grumpy. I mean, we all get into, you know, occasional bad moods. I, I really don't actually, though. That's the truth. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. Except one, there's one thing. There is one thing that will put me in a bad mood. But um, anyway, this is not about this is not about me. Um, but uh, to me, this is one of the worst things that you can get into a, or be in a relationship with somebody and they're moody. So what does somebody who's facing this, who may be facing 10 years, 20 years of a moody spouse, and maybe they have a mortgage and kids and, you know, the families and the friends and, you know, things go along okay. And then all of a sudden they're moody again. What, what uh, advice do you have for people who are living with moody spouses? If you're living with a moody spouse, you know that you have a moody spouse. So I always say that I mean, not that it's pleasant, but you've lived with it for years, you kind of know this, then you should track the pattern. And once you know that pattern of what causes that person and when they're going to become moody, then you basically say, okay, this is, this is their time. Allow them to have their time. And you do what you need to do to continue to enjoy life. A lot of times we are trying to help that person. Well, what's the matter? What can I do? Stop stressing yourself out. <laughs> Just allow them to be moody, have their mood, and you live your life in a happy, you know, way. And run for I the hills while the they're moody. Run for the yeah. hills while they're moody. <laughs> run for the hills while they're moody. Just allow them their time. And, and you know what? And it could be, not always, some people just have bad moods, but, I mean, it could be some type of um, mental malfunction that's going on um, that is causing it, maybe some type of a mild bipolar. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the situation. Mm-hmm. I can't diagnose. But that could also be the case, and they may have never been diagnosed. And so that could be a, a problem with what's going on, and you're not even aware of it. But... Yes, if you if you want to stay with that person and you've been dealing with it for years, and then you know what, like I said, track their patterns and do what you need to do to keep yourself happy. So, would you suggest like keeping a diary, like writing down when you notice that your spouse is in a bad mood, and maybe trying to figure out what the triggers are? I guess you're you're not suggesting to confront the spouse, but um, you know you got to keep your head about you. Um, and is that one way? That is one of the ways that you can do that and look for the triggers, see what causes them. I mean, don't change your life. Uh, You will be in a funk of your own and living in so much stress. Get in a bad mood. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Trying to please the other person. I mean, that's something that if that person is, if that's a consistency with that person, then you can't. There's nothing that you really can do to 
help that person, but you can't help yourself. <laughs> and, you know, I see a lot of like spoiled, honestly, like they're adults, but they are spoiled. You know, you can just tell that they've been given everything. No one's ever said no to them. The rules weren't made for them. Uh, they're just going to be, they're just going to sulk and they're going to be moody and, and that's it. They're going to blame everybody else. At what point does somebody need to take responsibility for their behavior, for their bad mood? They should always take responsibility for their bad mood. But if that's the kind of person that they are and they blame everybody else, it's very hard to change that person into realizing that, hey, it's me that is the problem. So that's going to be another stressful situation, trying to help them understand that, hey, you're the problem. <laughs> it's not everybody else around you. And that's an that's an issue that you're going that's difficult to deal with. Right. And and what I hear from the patients in my clinical practice is that it goes from the spouse's bad mood to an argument because it starts with name calling or put downs or just people are fed up and just fed up with this, you know, with these patterns of behavior. And, and you're absolutely right. It is, you know, you see it happens, you know, every two weeks or, or weekly on a Thursday night or whatever. Um, but, you know, I'm sure if people document it, they would see that this, you know, maybe happens every other month or maybe it's, you know, every day at four o'clock, whatever. Um, and, and, um, but it, it, what happens is it, it, takes away from the good, what I understand, it takes away from the good aspects of the relationship and it makes more negative time of the relationship. And so you're missing out, you know, the couple is missing out on good times together because there's so much focus on this person's bad mood. And that's something that can be shared as well. Um, and you can share with them, you know, see how much fun we have when you're not in this mood. So we need to work it out so that we can continue to have more good times rather than more bad times. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it could be like a little bipolar and neither one of us are diagnosticians, but um, no. that there could be a reason for these bad moods. And um, mm -hmm. how about substance use? I find I often ask that. I always ask that in my clinical practice. You know, is there any chance that your spouse is sneaking drinking um, or, or drinking more than you believe that they're drinking but you know most people will say no absolutely not or some might give it some thought um but oftentimes that can be the reason for the bad mood and i wonder if they are willing to actually go to the doctor and see because you know blood work can tell if there's too much in your system mm -hmm. like my husband and i don't drink and it was so funny because the doctor when we had gone for our regular exam with the blood work, they were like, oh, my God, you really don't. Because they thought, you know, we were lying when we say that we don't drink. Right. So they can actually tell if there is, you know, something going on just from from the blood work. Mm -hmm. Additionally, having, I don't know if you can have, what's it called, um, Marine, when you do like the, um, go through the scan to see if there are some malfunctions going on in the brain to mm -hmm. see if that's all like an MRI or a CAT scan. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. So these things need to be taken into consideration also. Yeah. I think you make a great point that it's, you know, if these bad moods persist and um, they're repeated that maybe a 
an assessment by a healthcare provider or physician is warranted. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think they can control somebody else's mood. Think, well, let's just lift you up. We'll just do this. We'll do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they try, mm-hmm. they can try to control it. But, you know, and that will drive somebody crazy. So what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on um, the ability to control somebody else's mood? That's crazy, just like you said. <laughs> that is, <laughs> you do your own thing. And if that person chooses to be in that mood, don't stay there and say, hey, you know what, what can I do for you? And like you said, they're already spoiled. Everything's done for them. Stop doing that. Allow them to deal with their own moodiness and realize that they're not going to be pampered. That could be another thing, perhaps, that they're doing that so they can have that attention and you can take care of them. So don't do that to yourself. Exactly. Because that's unhealthy. Now, do you have... Mentally, emotionally. I am so sure it is. Um, But if out there in Radio Land, do you have a grumpy spouse? What do you do? Give us a call. The number to call is one 877 Three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Doctor June will answer your questions. Um, you know, the other thing is, is people have gotten away with it. We've had this focus of being spoiled, acting like a child um, in a forty year old body. Um, you know, they've gotten away with it, and they think they can get away with it. What happens when somebody changes their behavior and they don't put up with it anymore? How beneficial is that? So say the spouse of a grumpy person says, you know what? No more. I'm not feeding into this. I'm not going to try and control you. I'm not going to try and change your mood. I'm out of here. Um, you know, temporarily for now, because we are going to talk about when it's time to leave after this. Um, but does that change people's behavior when the spouse all of a sudden changes? Because people, they know that, you know, they've got you eating out of, they, they've got you eating out of their hand, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a possibility if um, there. Yes, absolutely. I believe that that's something that should be done. And once they, you know, there, there's a comedy, um, I think it was called Bad Moms or something, where she actually did change. And she was like, you know what, you're going to have to do it for yourself because I'm going off to be with my friends. Sometimes you have to put your foot down and you don't even have to do it in an assertive way. You can actually just allow them to be in their bad mood and you're like okay well you know what I hope you feel better and you go off and do your own thing instead of catering to them right and once they see that oh you know what this is no longer working then hopefully they will probably adjust their behavior Absolutely. You know, it's really hard. And and what I see in my clinical practice with these couples is, um, you know, the one uh, of the of the lighter mood (laughs) takes it personally. (laughs) They feel like they're being blamed. They feel like the bad mood is their fault. you know, and, and that's what they, they jump the gun and they figure that this is my fault. What, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I did that. Um, how, you know, how can people not take this personally? That is um, unemotionally healthy. And it also sounds like, you know, some type of emotional abuse when you're blaming yourself. They need to build their self-esteem. They need to get out of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. They need to themselves get some type of help to strengthen them mentally because you should not live in that mindset that every time something happens, 
a person or a person is put into a bad mood, that is your fault and that you have to fix it and correct it. That is very unhealthy and you need to try to work that out. Welcome back. Sunday Night Health Show. Dr. June Hall is my guest. She's done an amazing TEDx talk and I suggest you Google that and, um, and view it. It's very important. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Hall. Dr. June. <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. So, you know, people stay in relationships uh, far too long. They get into them for the wrong reasons quite often, and then they can stay in them really long. And, and especially somebody who is staying with somebody who, you know, they may not feel that they work on their bad moods or their issues or whatever, and the same issue keeps popping up. It may even affect other things popping up. Um but what, you know, how is it that couples, because it's a, it's a lot when couples split up, you know, the kids, the housing, the, you know, if they are fortunate enough to belong to any type of clubs, um, there's friends to consider, there's in-laws, all this kind of thing. But, but there can be a right time um, for somebody to leave. What, what are some of the things that uh, would lead to that? When is the right time? Well, if there's a lack of communication and you can't come to agreement, then, of course, there's less amorous feelings, which means that impacts your sex life, which is also a part of the relationship. When you disagree on fundamental values, meaning that if you think it's important that you work together instead of one always being angry and taking it out on the other person, then that's um, a, a value that is not... Um, in alignment with a a good relationship. So when you look at all those things, you're looking at it's time to move on. Absolutely. And, you know, in this day and age um, where we're in a pandemic and we have, um, you know, different political views and there might be a couple that got married in wedded bliss and they were, little did they know, one was an (laughs) anti-vaxxer. two years after (laughs) walking down the aisle. He carried on down that aisle (laughs) into anti-vax land. Um, But that can cause tremendous stress in in a relationship. Even, even the vaxxer, you know, I'm not, I'm not Mm -hmm. blaming the anti-vaxxer here. I'm, I'm just saying that, um, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it could be that the anti-vaxxer is so upset that the, you know, person got a vaccination and maybe they're pregnant or maybe they're, you know, wanting to have children and they're feeling that that might affect, you know, that it will, it will not, but that's what the science says. And in fact, we've never had so many pregnant women in intensive care units in, in Canada since the onset of uh, intense, since intensive care units opened in this country. Um, And so it's very critical that but um, I digress. But, you know, if they have different political views or different religious views, I mean, sometimes people can meet on those levels and love that and then it can drive them crazy later. Right. Or sometimes it changes. One person changes their political views. One person changes their religious views and decides that this is, you know, how they want to live their life and their spouse does not come along with them. So this can't actually happen in a relationship. And if you cannot talk about it and agree to disagree, I mean, there are relationships that are successful where people have totally different you know, political or religious views, but they work together and they laugh about it. And, you know, they, you know, talk about it. But if you can't do that, then 
that's not going to make a successful relationship. And, and, and you make a great point, you know, talking about it. And it's so mm-hmm. hard for some people to express their feelings and to talk mm-hmm. about things or to talk about what might have happened to them or to talk about relationships that they may have had in the past, whether it be with family or friends or past lovers that may mm-hmm. have be contributing to the yes. unhappiness of the person, which actually boils over into the unhappiness in the relationship. True. That's very true. And I try to tell when I do relationship coaching, you don't bring your baggage into your current relationship. You need to deal with that before you even get into a new relationship. But if you start a relationship and you still have these things, don't take it out on the person that you're with. They're not the person who caused that. So don't bring that to the table with them. And I think that a lot of times people forget that they're so stuck or inundated with their problems that they haven't dealt with. And now they have that they haven't dealt with. And then that causes um, relationship issues. And that's an additional thing now they have to deal with. And we never even got to when should somebody call it quits, throw in the towel, say it's over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they know what that means. <laughs> Oftentimes we set out, we have objectives and then we just don't meet them. <laughs> That's what's <laughs> happened here. But Dr. June, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Always appreciate your input and your expertise. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? They can go to my website, dot com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll get definitely get you back on the program. And in the moment now, uh, you know, for the moment, these couples are hanging tight until you return. <laughs> it's been great. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. And in case you're just joining us now, we're going to be talking about uh, loneliness and also sexual glow. But right now, joining me on the line is Lori Brado, Dr. Lori Brado. She's a Canadian psychologist, best known for her work on low sexual desire and female sexual arousal disorder, or FSAD. And she's the author of a tremendous book called Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Good evening, Dr. Brado. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So glad to have you. So nice to see you, if uh, if ever so briefly, the other night. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Some semblance of normal. Actually seeing a face again. (laughs) It was. It was a bit of semblance. Notice how I was near the door with the KN95 mask on. (laughs) I'm always thinking ahead. (laughs) Anyway, but it was so much fun. It was nice to get together, um, you know. Sure was. Which is a lot of the work that you do. Get pe- getting people together <laughs> because we've been apart for so long um, and oftentimes in relationships uh, people are apart and we see this uh, with low sexual desire and um, sexual arousal disorder but you were telling me the other night about this really cool research that you're doing so I'd really love it if you could share it with the listeners yes so um, this is about uh, a condition called vaginismus which is a fear of vaginal penetration. And, um, you know, so although sometimes people with vaginismus might have low desire, it's really about the fear element. So these are people who they worry about pain, they think it's going to hurt, um, and that intense fear leads their pelvic floor muscles to tighten up so that even when they attempt penetration, whether it's 
through sexual activity or maybe a tampon or even a, a gynecologic exam, um, the pelvic floor muscles are so tight that nothing will go into the vagina. So it's a condition called vaginism. It's pretty common and there are some effective treatments, but because the fear is so strong for some people, it leaves them actually avoiding these even effective treatments. So um, what we have launched is a, a brand new novel approach to addressing vaginismus that involves virtual reality. And I just want to step you back uh, a second there. Um, they have this intense fear because they've mm-hmm. experienced this pain before. Is that... Well, they may have, but they, but it, the, the actual pain is not necessary. It's really the fear element that's necessary for diagnosing vaginismus. So we know that for some people, a fear of pain can be so strong that it actually prevents them from going into situations where they might actually experience pain. So in, for some of these, these mostly women, um, it's, it's not that they've even experienced uh, a painful event, but because the fear of it is so strong, they avoid uh, those encounters entirely. So they might even avoid encounters where they're even meeting people for the possibility of that engaging in painful sex. And why did they have that fear? Was it, was it a, a mixed message that they received about sex growing up? Yeah, so that, it's a good question, and there is not one simple answer for every person. But we do know that people who are more prone to anxiety, more prone to catastrophizing, which is this phenomenon of imagining the worst happening, and then probably some fear-based messages growing up. So maybe the person who was told, don't use tampons, they will hurt. Um, intercourse is going to you know, leave you bleeding on the bed and kind of creating these really vivid uh, gruesome images for for a person that really uh, leaves an imprint on them and with this fear for for many many years it's just fascinating and it's very very sad I would imagine mm-hmm. that um, women um, and even those that they are in the relationship with if they're in an yeah. intimate relationship must experience um, guilt shame embarrassment se- yeah. live in secret. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also very frustrating because the rational part of them and maybe even their care providers tell them, you know, it, it's not going to hurt to the extent that you believe it is going to. And so they might calm themselves down. They might engage in some self-talk saying it's okay. Millions and millions of women all over the world have sex on a regular basis and it doesn't lead to the pain that they're imagining. But then once they're in the actual encounter, the fear kicks in. And like I said, it, it almost automatically leads to this tightening of the pelvic floor muscles that prevents penetration from even happening. So partners might describe it as feeling like they're hitting a wall when they're trying to insert either their penis or their finger or, or something else. It literally is like like hitting a wall. Okay. And does this typically respond to uh, conventional psychological treatments? Yeah, so the best treatment that's been evaluated is um, progressive exposure. And that what that means is that you progressively expose the person to increasingly fearful situations. So they might imagine themselves engaging in, in penetration. And then they might use something very, very small, maybe a, a Q-tip and insert. And then they might move on to their finger. All the while, they're practicing relaxation of the pelvic floor and also at the same time challenging many of the fear-related beliefs that come up. 
The problem with that treatment, although it works incredibly well, the problem is that it totally relies on the woman being able to, not just motivated, but actually able to do those exposure exercises at home on their own. And as I said earlier, for many of them, the fear is so strong that it that it supersedes even their best intentions at wanting to work on this at home. And uh, because a lot of women, I mean, I see this in my clinical practice, I'm sure you mm-hmm. see it in yours, women don't like to look at themselves down there. Yeah. They don't mm-hmm. like to touch themselves down there. Um, yeah. And And this involves, uh, this exposure therapy can involve vaginal dilators. Is that correct? That's right. So dilators, um, for any of your listeners who are not sure what we're talking about, um, they they essentially look like uh, a finger or a dildo or a candlestick. And they progressively increase in size and the person essentially inserts it on their own. So they hold the end and then they gradually and slowly would insert it into their own vagina while they're relaxing, while they're breathing, while they're doing their very best to, again, challenge any of those fear and pain-related beliefs that come up. So that really is the mainstay of treatment, and it's done progressively and slowly. Um, and when a person is able to do that, um, they, it works really, really well. But again, for a lot of people, that fear is just so strong. It, it can be immobilizing. And can it be an acquired fear? Yeah, it can be acquired. So it might be the case that maybe a person actually had a traumatic event happen to them, maybe a traumatic childbirth, um, a sexual assault, uh, maybe a really difficult uh, pap smear gynecologic exam that mm-hmm. then kind of put into into motion that fear. And that can be even more challenging because they have, they've actually experienced the pain itself. So their fear is not irrational. It's a very rational and maybe even protective fear in place. But the problem is, is that that tightening of the pelvic floor is happening when they don't want it to. And that's, so that's uh, continues to be problematic for them. So yeah, how it starts out for an, for any particular person might look quite different from individual to individual. Mm -hmm. And I know in talks that you and I have had in the past um, that uh, one of the effective treatments that, that is not available in Canada and we're going back to the dilators is, um, you know, using a dilator in the presence of a clinician and that leaves a major gap in care in Canada. So that's not available here. Unfortunately not. And, um, you know, our colleagues in the Netherlands and other other places uh, around the world um, they their uh, their regulatory bodies for healthcare providers do allow them to do that to to do this right in the office and actually patients will say what a relief it is to be able mm-hmm. to do this in in right you know in the space in the safety and privacy of right. a clinical office with a with a qualified healthcare provider but we um, we simply don't do that here in Canada and in the in the U S I would imagine as and well. in the U S exactly even more so Def- <laughs> definitely don't do it in the U S especially the definitely southern U S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. But that leaves a major gap in care here mm-hmm. in Canada for these women. Um, you know, the, I, I just can't imagine, you know, women, women living with this for a protracted period of time, which it sounds like they are at risk of. But um, when I asked about acquired, I, I don't want women out there to think that, um, you know, oftentimes women at, at menopause or 
perimenopause, postmenopause, they will get vaginal dryness that leads to painful mm-hmm. sex. This is something very yeah. different. Um, but I, I had a patient the other day, a couple, and, and um, you know, basically he said, you know, she closes her legs and tightens up, yeah. you know, at, yeah. at any, but it's it's the result of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So vaginal right. dryness due to painful sex. Um, right. I mean, very different. Yes, mm-hmm. very different. So, I mean, painful sex due to vaginal dryness. I think I said that backwards. Anyway. Thanks for being here with me this evening as well. We have uh, Dr. Lori Brado on the line. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Brado. She is the uh, guru in sexual health research, female sexual arousal disorder, vaginismus, low sexual desire, anorgasmia, you name it. She knows about it and she can help you. And uh, one way she can help you, with, especially if you have vaginismus, is with, is with this new virtual reality clinical study. Dr. Brado, thanks for staying on the line. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? so intrigued by this. Yeah, it's fascinating. So virtual reality is a technology that immerses people in 3D simulations of feared situations. So basically what that means is you put on the headset and what you see through the headset is an actual scene of an event and it it feels as if you are in the situation. So, I mean, we've seen this with gaming and we've seen this used um, you know, in other ways for entertainment, et cetera. But we've also seen an increasing use of virtual reality in the health sphere, particular uh, as a way of exposing people to feared situations. So if you can imagine having a fear of dogs, you might um, put the headset on and then, and, and then actually see a dog very slowly, gently approaching you and you can walk up to the dog and you can put your hand out and imagine touching it. And it's a great way of doing exposure therapy in um, not in the real life. Um, so while you do it with the headset on, you can practice deep breathing. You can, again, challenge some of the thoughts that are having about how scary the situation is. And when we see virtual reality treatments for conditions like fears and anxieties, they actually work really, really well because the person also remembers that they're in a safe, controlled clinical setting. There's a healthcare provider in the next room. And, you know, if the fear gets too strong, they can always take the headset off. Now, what? Oh, sorry. I was going to ask. So, this is an erotic video that they're watching. Yeah. So, what we're doing is we're taking the same principle that have been used for other fear based conditions and we're applying it to women with vaginismus. So, when they put the headset on, they're not seeing a puppy dog, they're seeing a, a sexual scene. And um, it, the, we have a variety of different videos, and some of the videos. They might be watching a sexual scene from a distance, but in some of the videos, their first person point of view. So what that means is with the headset on, you actually feel like you are the participant in the sexual scene and the, the person that you're engaging in sexual activity with is, you know, reaching out and touching you. And the the imagery is is so incredible that it truly does create this immersive experience. We've actually tested this last year just to see, do people really have that sense of being immersed in the scene? And they sure do. They report feeling as if they are the participant in the scene engaging in sexual activity. Now, do they have to be attracted to that? This may not be the smartest question ever asked. Do they have to be attracted to that person in that virtual reality scene? It's a good question. And, you know, we've we've tried, we have a variety of different stimuli depending on what the person's preference is, Uh is including the preference for the gender of the other partner. So we've got some variety there, Uh but really it's, 
you know, they are watching the films that we chose. So, yes, there's a chance they might not be attracted to the person, but we're also not, it's attraction is not what we're after. It's immersion that we're after. Mm-hmm. Immersion and eliciting some of the fear, but also giving the person an opportunity to work through the fear, breathe through it, cope with it while they imagine being in this situation. So, The whole idea is that can we create this sexual scene that feels very real for them in a controlled lab environment? And does that increase the chances that when they go home, they'll be able to overcome that fear? And does this person, okay, so you just answered my question. Does this person, are they allowed to take the virtual reality headset home? Not yet. Not yet. Because, no, we have a pretty expensive unit, so (laughs) we're not quite ready to part with it. Oh, you just have one unit. Yeah, and we costed out at-home versions, and you can actually get slightly lower quality, but still really good headsets Mm -hmm. for, you know, $30 or less. And so if if it turns out that this works, in other words, if it turns out that we can create an immersive experience, it, it, uh, it it allows them to overcome some of their fear, then that really sets us up for then doing the next stage in the work, which is, can we get these mass-produced, sent at home, and have people work through them at home on their own? Right. Um, it, it is just fascinating. How can people... Uh, so are you recruiting... Current, first of all, I was thinking, whatever yeah. does the Clinical Research mm-hmm. Ethics Board, Kreb, think of you <laughs> when your studies come their way? <laughs> They're yeah, like, yay! Well, when, they, when they see an application by, by Brado, I'm sure they roll their eyes. But. They're all smiling. They're all smiling. Um, and so how can people find out about the study, enroll in this study? Yeah, so the lead on the study is my uh, doctoral student, Natalie Brown. Um, So um, people can find out about it through our website, which is www.brottolab.com. Brotto is my last name, B-R-O-T-T-O, lab.com. And so we are looking for people with vaginismus. So again, that's individuals who have that strong fear, vaginal muscle tightening um, around vaginal penetration, and they need to be able to come on site for a single visit, and and on site is at Vancouver Hospital. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lori. We will definitely get you back uh, to get the results of this fascinating virtual reality study. Thanks so much, Maureen. You're very welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.